You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Sean Connery ventures to the outland of Zardash. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and you've had your six. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and Adam, I am just over the third moon of Jupiter today. Really? Why? I don't know. It's November 7th, 2020, and I can't imagine what news would have broken on this day that would have made me so happy right now. I don't even remember it. Well, it's something that should have happened four days ago. It's something that should have happened four years ago, if you know what I'm saying. Oh! 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 Please, it's the first time I've had fun in a long time. Let me have this. (laughs) But, enough about that, Adam, because even though I'm kind of happy, we're here for this week uh, on the Devil Edge Devil Hill podcast for kind of a sad occasion. Yeah. It's kind of a shitty thing. I mean, as obviously everyone knows... The legend that is Sir Sean Connery passed away, but at the ripe old age of 90. So, I mean, at least he got to live a long life. Yeah, and especially that he got to enjoy like a solid 20 or so years of retirement and stuck mostly to it. Yeah, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sort of did that to him, and I I don't blame him. No, I don't blame him, yeah. Aside from like a few voiceover things like a Bond video game and that weird Sir Billy movie, which was a weird (laughs) Scottish like anime movie that I've seen clips of and looks terrible. Um, he mostly uh, stuck outside of the limelight and everything, and I mean, just so good on him for that. But yes, he did pass away, even though before he retired, he obviously had decades worth of great material. And most people obviously know him from way back around, like, early 60s, late 50s for Darby O'Gill and the Little People. That just really yeah. got his career going. Yep, that's the only thing of note, too, from that era. Right, of course, yes. Um, yep. But of course, he was James Bond. He was sort of the iconic portrayal of James Bond. Depending on which generation you talk to is sort of like the defining figure of James Bond as sort of a character. I guess like, like kind of like Doctor Who and other roles that are played by several people, people kind of latch onto their own Bond, that, who they grew up with necessarily. But as someone who didn't necessarily grow up with a specific Bond, I didn't really watch the Bond movies until later in my life, Connery still always sort of loomed over as like at least the originator. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, he's not necessarily my favorite Bond. Regardless, he still is James Bond. Anytime you think of that character, you still, you know, Sean Connery's kind of the first one that pops in the head. Most parodies, especially, were kind of parodying that specific type of Bond. But I guess my introduction to him, I think we discussed this ages ago when we talked about this movie, was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So I was more aware of, like, older Connery from the 80s and 90s. And I'm guessing that's similar for you? Uh, no, I, I mean, I grew up, my dad was a huge James Bond fan. That, and then Highlander. I think that's probably the first time I really took note of who Sean Connery was, was Highlander. And then just followed him from there, you know, the Untouchables, 
Rising Sun, you know, The Rock, everything he was in. I mean, he was kind of always exciting to see. And he had a very similar career to one that we've expressed a lot about, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, in terms of he was cast in so many big movies, even though in reality, like given his Scottish nationality, um, it didn't make any sense for him to be in most of the movies he was in, especially later in his career. Well, they're like, fuck it, it's Sean Connery, he's got a screen presence, I don't give a shit about his accent. Right, well, I mean biggest whatever is Highlander. You're telling me well, his name is Juan Villalobos Ramirez? Right, and he's an Egyptian who <laughs> yeah, mostly is known Egyptian. as a Spaniard. Yeah. <laughs> this makes no sense at all. Or, or, or even the Untouchables. Like, sure, you're a Chicago cop. Sure. Yeah, right, exactly. Yep. That's the Chicago way. Like, oh, is it? <laughs> is it? I mean, got him an Oscar, so that is the Chicago way from now on. Officially. What is Rules for draw and stud poker? You were supposed to take these out of the deck. Do you remember that fucking The Simpsons? Yes, of course. That, I, I guess that's also another thing is we definitely knew him. I guess more for parody than anything else, oh. especially from on my end, from like obviously Celebrity Jeopardy, where uh, oh, Daryl Hammond. That's what your mother said last night, Trebek. All that shit, of course. Yep. And even some of like the weird things, like you know, he obviously just recently died, but we can't admit that now. he might have said some controversial things. Very, very oh. controversial things, with particular Barbara Walters, for example. Uh, that shows that he's at least a very. Uh, complicated character in sort of our film history sure uh yeah I, i'd say so he had definitely some um sort of outdated ideas let's put it that way yes but if you're new to double edge double bill basically every week adam and i uh discuss a double feature that we randomly picked at the end of the previous episode and uh each of us had two good movies or two bad movies depending on who had the quality so adam in this case had the two good movies and we ended up picking randomly outland and mm-hmm. then the bad movies, which I had, uh, we ended up picking randomly, and we got Zardoz. So, uh, two very interesting films in this filmography, to say the least. Yeah, I think you could say that. But uh, let's go ahead to uh, our good feature, which would be Outland. In a mining town on the second moon of Jupiter, something deadly is happening. No way it could have been homicide. Had to have been a suicide. Did you do autopsy? No. Then how do you know it was a suicide? There's no other explanation. Outland. The ultimate enemy is still man. So Outland uh, came out May 22nd, 1981 from writer-director Peter Himes, who we've discussed uh, End of Days previously on the podcast, uh, his film, but also was a guy who made like a lot of sort of efficient, solid, mid-budget movies. Like around the same time he's doing stuff like Running Scared, the Billy Crystal movie, or another movie with Sean Connery recently saw, The Presidio. Dude, dude was a worker. And uh, this was an interesting choice because I wasn't aware of this, and Adam, you were aware of it, but you hadn't seen it, right? Correct. My dad used to always talk about it and how much he loved it, but I never got a chance to see it. So I had a sort of a stigma of it. God, is this going to be good or not? But I figured, why the hell not give it a shot for the show? Well, and we'll get into definitely what we thought about it. But first, why don't you give people a bit of a summation? Because I wasn't aware of this movie at all. I'm sure a lot of people weren't. Um, so why don't you go ahead and give a brief summary of Outland? Sure. Uh, Sean Connery plays a sort of space federal marshal. Uh, he's stationed for his yearly rotation on Io, the mood of Jupiter, where they're mining for titanium, I believe. Basically, he's stationed there and he walks in and wants to sort of clean the place up. And there's been strange deaths happening. 
and uh, he's not really getting any cooperation from anybody, so he kind of takes it on his own to solve and figure out what's going on. Well, and what did you think of that, Land, having seen it now, Adam? I dug it. I think it's pretty good. I think it's a very capable sort of early 80s uh, sci-fi movie. I think it's pretty damn good. It's not perfect by any means, but I think there's a lot of cool tricks in it, a lot of cool set design. Uh, some of the camera work is really, really good. A lot of character actors popping up in this thing all over the place. And uh, I think Sean Connery really sort of fits this bill as this sort of aging, wants-to-be-hero cop who's always getting in trouble and constantly getting moved around. He's got a wife that just can't do it anymore, and he just wants to prove that he can still fix things and solve things and sort of save people. Yeah, um, like I said, having not been aware of it, like when I did my research before even watching the movie, all I heard was people allege that, oh, it's high noon in space, which is kind of true in that, like, the third act is high noon in space. Really, before yeah. that, it it feels a lot more like Alien and also, weirdly, like a lot of sort of 70s cop uh, thrillers, like especially mm -hmm. like Serpico has a lot of that feel with uh, sort of the corruption that you're mentioning with Peter Boyle and uh, all that. And I will say, yeah, I definitely, I did dig it quite a bit, especially, I think I definitely did prefer at least the buildup before we got to the high noon bit of it. With Sean Connery kind of being on the space, I agree, it's an interesting thing where this movie was originally written as a Western. Peter Himes was told, hey, you, Westerns are dead, you can't do it. So he was like, fine, um, how about instead of um, the OK Corral, it's IO Space Station. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Because <laughs> people like the space movies. I do really like the aesthetic in terms of it is straight, really copying a lot of the imagery that sort of feels lived in from Alien, but in a different vibe. Because in Alien, it's more of like, oh, they're on this space truck. As opposed to here, any of the outdated sort of special effects work because this feels like a very sort of bureaucratic stationary environment where it feels like oh they got like the most bare minimum materials to pass like an inspection for it to work in terms of like how all of the architecture looks how like the one cafeteria or the one bar they're in looks it looks run down but in a way that really benefits sort of the anxiety and feel of the movie oh yeah absolutely and i love that the crew quarters for the workers are literally just bunks they have literally bunk beds. That's kind of where they are. I definitely got the alien vibe, the aliens vibe. I got a little bit of Total Recall um, with some of the stuff, which obviously Total Recall came later. And aliens even came later. Yeah, right. But it definitely that, that sort of aesthetic you would maybe even expect in this movie is there. And it is done really well. It doesn't feel sort of like directly lifted from any one thing it's very appropriate the way everything looks and feels and like you said sort of rickety and maybe just held together by you know just bolts and rivets just to pass inspection and make things livable the technology it is obviously outdated like even though like the uh the f sort of emailing and and phone screen messages and things like that but it, it sort of makes sense too for this world with the sort of technology that they've been given, they're making the best out of it. Right, and I think a big part of that is we should mention even the technology used to make the movie. Um, this was the first movie to use a process called IntraVision, which is basically this process where they would shoot a model for like, especially a lot of these like outdoor sort of space sets where people are in their suits and shit. They would shoot the model and then shoot people on a black screen and then have them move around at the exact same angles, but they would have had the model like already projected into the specific kind of camera that would allow them to produce an in-camera sort of 
balloon screenshot, basically. So on that level, it's a very innovative movie. And this is a process that would later be used through, like, the 90s and stuff, like Army of Darkness or The Fugitive uh-huh. sort of movies where they would have to have, like, a model for their big elaborate set. And I think that mostly really works, especially earlier on in the movie. Like, the opening scene of this movie, which sort of feels like their equivalent to, like, an alien scene, in which, of yeah. all people, John Ratzenberger has this hallucination that he has, like, a spider on him, and he ends up accidentally um, causing his uh, air tube to be unlocked, and his head explodes and his body drifts down. That's a great use of the Intervision technology, and I really think it works throughout most of the movie, until, I would say, around the climax, where it feels like they were contractually obligated to have, like, a space action scene. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely agree. Even the ending sequence, it's not offensive. Like, it doesn't come across, like, where it's just hard to watch it's still very very capable and well done for the technology at the time but yeah i I do agree out of all of it that is sort of the where you see the sort of the most uh wires or seams uh for sure right but i also think that at least later on it feels more like a contractual obligation to have like a bigger special effects sequence um, when we get to, like, there's sort of three deaths at the end of the movie, and I think the last one really works, the fight sort of on that one, like, uh, electrified, um, like, pyramid side, uh-huh. and everybody's falling down. I really like that. The two deaths prior to that feel kind of like, okay, th- this felt like an obligation. Like, we have to have two people explode in space, basically, and it doesn't look nearly as interesting. But the earlier stuff where it's just more of the atmosphere building up, like, this is what this place is. If you have to go outside, you're in these big, bulky suits, and it's really shitty, and you can't do much, so you're stuck mostly inside these corridors. And I think one of the best sequences in this movie that really shows off sort of that claustrophobia and that anxiety is the foot chase that happens, where Sean Connery's catching this guy who is dealing this drug that's being used basically to force people to work longer and harder until they eventually go insane. Um, And that foot chase is so good. It feels a lot like sort of a cop procedural foot chase in particular, which Peter Himes did a lot in his career. And this is one of the better examples of doing that, especially in a cramped area where you're just going down one corridor, one giant thing. Like, although there's a bit where it's almost like they go down the same corridor twice, and that's just how repetitive this place is. You almost mm-hmm. get lost trying to, like, find this guy, but in a way that really works for that chase. That's my favorite part of the action bits as well. The whole chase and then even the fight. It, it, while it's really Sean Connery just can't do fight choreography. I don't think he's ever been able to <laughs> properly. It just looks silly. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that scene where they're you know they're jumping from balcony to balcony. Some of the balconies have wire railing, others have steel railing, where everything just feels sort of ramshackle and put where it needs to go just to get from A to B. But then there's gaps in different areas, and yeah, it, it's really really fucking cool. And like I said, Connery, you know, to get to the man of the hour, I think he's pretty damn good in this, dude. Like, you do see some genuine emoting from him in a couple scenes, too. He never really plays the most sympathetic of characters, but you kind of feel for him in a little bit, you know, especially when he's talking to his wife near, like, the two-third mark of the film and and things like that. Like, you kind of get a sense of who this guy is and the sort of uh, duty that he's uh, made himself uphold uh, and sort of forsaking all others even his own happiness and his family's happiness especially yeah shout out to uh kika markham who plays his wife who initially we see there's a clear strain with their relationship in terms of her being on the spaceship with their son and everything and then like right after that opening scene she's already left we would really like you to come with us on this transport But, I mean, he's got this whole thing where he's trying to solve this mystery at the same time. My only problem with that, um, that kid is terrible. (laughs) 
Oh, dude, he's so bad. Well, Paul, yeah, uh, played by Nicholas oh. Bar- Barnes, who is a British kid actor, and they dubbed him over with, like, a bad American woman's voice. Why? I don't understand why. Because the mom clearly British. And, and he's, he's fucking Scottish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why has he got, like, a nine-year-old girl voice? I don't understand. An American voice. It doesn't make any sense. There's a great video conferencing between um, Connery and Mark Ham. that's really just like, we want you to come, we really hope, and there's, like, a lot of, like, regret, remorse, and worry about, like, oh, man, is this gonna work? And then the kid comes and like, hi, Dad, how are you? <laughs> and it's the worst. I miss you, Daddy. Like, uh, and he's trying to act against it. I, I, I miss you too. <laughs> it's so, I agree. That kid is fucking lousy. Now that it, you know, I didn't realize he was dubbed, so that that explains it for sure. Yeah, I don't understand the choice unless like his dialogue didn't pick up, and they couldn't get him back to do any APR or something. I, I have no fucking clue. ADR. Uh, whatever. This is actually ADR. Someone better get fired for that blunder. <laughs> Let him be a little British kid who gives, unless he was super cockney, like Oliver Twist cockney. <laughs> oh, Dad, oh, I miss you, I do, I do. Oh, shite. I've got to wet myself, Dad. <laughs> you just got braces. That's really bad if you're wetting yourself. But some other great, you mentioned some of the great character actors, and I think what kind of helps with Connery is particularly after his wife leaves. He has this great sort of, like, back-and-forth, snide but endearing friendship with uh, Frances Sternhagen, who's a great character actress who you've seen in, like, all sorts of stuff. But she plays uh, this doctor who's helping him analyze a lot of the blood and finding out about this drug and stuff like that, who becomes basically his sidekick for the movie. And their friendship is what makes this movie work so well. Because there's, like, a bit of the back-and-forth. There's the whole thing about, like, oh, it's a doctor joke. Oh, that's a Marshall joke. Like, they're going back-and-forth. But it never stirs into, is he going to have an affair with her? She hints at one point that, like, man, your wife's stupid for trying to leave you like this, but that's as far as it would ever go. And I love that it maintains this, like, really mutual sort of friendship that lasts the whole movie. I dig that a lot. I do, too. And I, I didn't take the, man, your wife's stupid thing as her be, like, hitting on him. I think it was more her way to try to build him up and make him feel better. Like, it never came across sort of slimy to me. I don't, I don't think she's necessarily, like, um, hitting on him with that. But as much as just, like, kind of pondering for a second, like, and that's just leaving it there but yeah i continue no but yeah i absolutely dug their friendship too i i really did enjoy their sort of entire back and forth and and their final even scene together where she, you know she's like you did real good and he's like you did too and she's like you know i know basically like it was really cool i i, I really really enjoyed it whole thing, she's like his space drinking buddy basically she keeps talking about how much she just off oh, yeah. like let's go get a drink or something like that it feels like there's this real compatriotship and she actually does stuff later it feels very especially rare for a connery movie that he would have like this strong like a female supporting character who isn't a love interest yeah i agree uh she's really cool and then you know you get that one final scene with the two of them that was really cool and then the movie sort of ends on a wet fart like with the email on the screen like just the dialogue of it you're like you know i can't wait to sleep with you for for a whole year you're like wah, wah, wah. i didn't mind that I thought that was, like, a fine enough way to end it. I felt like it would have been a bit worse if you had, like, another scene which is like, I'm coming for you, baby. Yeah, that's true. Or if, like, she's on the tram and he shows up and she's run, they run to each other or something. Yeah, that would have been, I guess, a lot. Like, if they would have done the Hostiles ending. I like the idea more that he's been using this communicator for so long to, like, kind of ignore his wife in his own way. And then by the end of it, he's using it to actually have communication with her by the end of it. I think it's a solid way of ending the movie there. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, whatever. Fuck me, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> no, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, 
Yo, what about fucking homeboy, the, the hanging scene, his tongue bulging out? That was so effective. Oh, yes. Like, it, it was disturbing. There's a lot of impressive gore, but particularly, I believe you're talking about the guy who was at the other end of the foot chase, right? No, 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 no. I'm talking, his, uh, his sergeant. Sean Connery's oh, sergeant. Right. Was the dirty cop. Where he wasn't dirty, he just, he didn't He kind of anything. looked the other way, basically, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I thought that worked, but also the scene where after they capture the foot chase guy... And he's hanging up in, like, on an umbilical, kind of in zero-gravity prison. And then he comes back and that dude's head has exploded. And there's gore and viscera everywhere. This movie uses gore very effectively. Yeah, it's done real well. They do love the head inflating. Yes. Uh, they, sort do. Of they do love that. But it looks good, though. It doesn't look too phony. I mean, well, obviously it looks phony. But it's not, like, super cheesy looking. I, I think it's pretty effective. Plus, they don't hold on it too long. They just have, like, a shot. And then it's, like, explosion. Yeah, it's just done. Right. I, I think pretty much everything in this movie is pretty effective, like from the costuming to the gore to the acting to everything. There's just something about it that keeps me from like really praising it. And I can't quite put my finger on it. Like, I think it's it's good, but it's not great. Well, I just feel like uh, some of the aesthetic stuff works for sort of like I mentioned, like them kind of doing this play on capitalism um, and the abuse of these workers but um, kind of like putting it instead of like in a Western context that they originally wanted into space. Uh, it's like I said, I think that mostly works except when they really have to go full on for like, oh no, this is a space movie. We have to go out there. Like they don't have a creature, which I'm good with. I'm, I'm fine with it. Yeah, like a creature too. in there. The ending, I think in particular, is what soured it from being like a full on like four out of five star. Oh my, man, this is great kind of movie because it felt that was a bit more tacked on as opposed to like the more engaging sequences are really when they're like inside that base and there's like we haven't mentioned it but fucking peter boyle as the slimy piece of shit dude who runs this uh station is so good and he feels like he would be kind of like unassuming but the more you find out about his corruption the more you're like oh shit the, the frankenstein means <laughs> shit, shit right here yeah, he's really fucking good in it, too. It's real subtle. He's not totally mustache twirling, which works. Like, even Sean Connery's first speech when he's introduced himself, just the way Peter Boyle, like, fires back at him a little bit, but very, like, sort of, like, underhanded. And you kind of get a sense of who he is right then and there. He's kind of, a like, a coward. It, yeah, he's, he's really fucking good in it. And, you know, to go to the ending, the, the, you know, what you're talking about, the, like, the last sort of bit, of the movie, I think up until the hired guns land, it's very effective. I like the countdown of the clock. I like that there's this sort of looming dread that's coming that Sean Connery knows that these killers are coming to take him out. Like, you know, cause he listened in on the phone call and stuff like that. Like it's a really sort of effective tension builder, but then it's like these two clowns show up. Yeah. There's just two of them. And the, with these, Everybody's got the same fucking gun in this movie. These sawed-off shotguns. Well, they both look like they're just like uh, country bumpkin militiamen. They're just coming the here, <laughs> like he's coming right for us. It's like they're just yeah. to say that. As opposed to the one guy who works yeah, is the like the one are. the one guy who was actually on the base before and is trying mm -hmm. to stop him. Which is, that guy's like very chill. Like I forgot that actor, but he's like unfortunately the one black guy. Yeah, his the new sergeant. Yeah, his new sergeant. Yeah, the new sergeant. I really dug um, his sort of, like, chilling presence in that whole fight sequence. But the other two, yeah. Where it's like, the one guy yeah, the has his head explode, which is repetitive. The other guy gets sucked out of space. I didn't care for either of those two deaths. No, me neither. They both look like they drive meat delivery trucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, neither of these guys, you know, well, you know, it's a couple days old, but it's still good. 
Like, <laughs> I did love Stephen. Uh, it's I can't, I can't ever remember his real name. I think Stephen Burkoff, but Victor Maitland from uh, Beverly Hills Cop is the guy who got all drugged out with the prostitute and the knife. Yeah, that that whole sequence is really well done too. That's a very tense, brilliantly put together. Scene, really, yeah. really cool. And I, I, as soon as I saw, it, I expected him to be in it more because he was sort of the quintessential like 80s bad guy for a while. It was kind of cool that he's only in it for the one scene. Like it kind of threw me for a loop. I, I honestly thought when they first showed him, like, oh, this is like the main fucking bad guy. But no, nah, yeah, he's, he's in it. And dude, fuck, does he get shot to shit, man. Like, it's a full-on shotgun blast to the chest, and they show it full screen. And it's really well done. And can I ask, to get a blood draw, is it normal? You know, even on a dead body, do you shove the needle directly in the throat? Um, I mean, that's probably not the best place you would figure it'd be like the arm or some other place yeah, like that. Or, you know, the open chest wound would be effective, I think. I don't know, right in the, right in the jugular, but hey, what do I know about being a, a space marshal? But what's more cinematic, Adam? Like, right into the neck. Yeah, I guess so. I you guess know, it's business. Um, but I also want to say in terms of, to go back to Connery before we maybe go to Final Thoughts, in the 80s period, it's kind of interesting because... He'd obviously been James Bond throughout most of the 60s, then pause, one movie in the 70s. And then after this, he would do Never Say Never Again, um, which is a mistake on a lot of levels. Um, But I like sort of this era of Connery being a bit more about him kind of acknowledging his age, which is kind of a problem when we get post-Untouchables in the 90s. It's always just like, no, I'm young and virile. I can have a romantic relationship with Catherine Zeta-Jones at age... 59 or whatever the fucking was an entrapment as opposed to like here this is one of the ones where it feels like he's acknowledging kind of his middle age especially at this point uh yeah yeah i i I agree he feels sort of run down old like this he's the he's the old sheriff you know who he's basically wyatt Earp and tombstone man where he's been doing this for so long and he just kind of wants to go out on somewhat of a bang his last hurrah really saved someone. This movie is a lot more of him kind of acknowledging his vulnerability and embracing himself like Francis Sternhagen, or especially the scene that's the most high noon of the movie, when he goes to the cafeteria right before those uh, hunters land, and he's like, does anyone want to help me? I'm genuinely trying to seek something from somebody, and nobody even looks at him. Nobody is yep. even daring to look his other way. And you can tell that hurts him because he's actually being vulnerable and nobody gives a shit. Yeah, I agree. He, yeah, that's a good point. He's finally just... Owning up to the fact, yeah, I need help. Yeah, he, I love it. Yeah, nobody says shit. He's like, that's my fault. <laughs> yeah, my like you know, It's really fucking good, man. Uh, you know, but it's sort of go, like you said, maybe transition to the final thoughts thing. This is the reason I'm glad I picked this. Uh, a is because I never watch it, and it sort of had this stigma for me. But B, nobody knows what the fuck this movie is. Nobody's heard of this. No. So, so it's kind of cool in that way to where it, it's nice to be pleasantly surprised by something I kind of expected to suck. It's a ne- nice little gem to discover when he was sort of in the biggest lull that he kind of went through from the 70s to the mid 80s, really. And uh, this, I, I'd say this is definitely one of the standouts of that era of his career, for sure. There's a lot here to like. I, I It does feel like it's sort of bogs down in parts and uh even becomes meandering with a certain certain couple things and i agree the ending is just maybe a little too overtly flashy for no reason yeah i i I think it's a really fun little 80s sci-fi and uh if you 
are a fan of Sean Connery and you might not have heard of this one, I think it's definitely worth checking out. Um, as far as being available to see it, you're going to have to pay to rent it. I don't think it's available to stream anywhere. Unless you have stars, apparently. One of the other weird things has like a bunch of the movies that we talk about for the show. Oh, that's right. Yeah, star- well, you can get the Stars channel on Prime. Yeah. You just sign up for the seven-day free trial, cancel it on day six. You won't have to pay a dime. But yeah, it's a pretty fun little movie, man. It's not the best one. But I'm definitely glad we got to check it out. Yeah, I always like having discoveries on the show that I appreciate. You know, sometimes we have discoveries of just, like, terrible movies that we're like, oh, we regret this. Or even especially when we do a good movie we haven't seen. It's like, oh, neither of us like it that much or something like that. But this is a great case of finding a solid diamond in the rough. And especially, as you mentioned, I think late 70s, this is not too long after he did shit like Meteor. Really bad paycheck movies that he did not clearly give a shit about. But this is, I agree, a really solid gem that has a bit more vulnerability from him and also really works, especially if you're a fan of Alien, like we mentioned, a lot of the aesthetic stuff down to the uniforms look a lot like Alien. Like, even the logo um, has yeah. the rainbow thing, um, which is similar to Wayland Utani. Even though, weirdly, the uh, it's what it was like Con Am, which is like a parody of Pan Am, so that's a joke that holds up <laughs> very well. Um, but no, otherwise, really solid post Alien sci fi thriller that kind of has a grungy aesthetic. And I think when it's especially maintained inside the space station works as a really palpable police procedural that transitions into, like, Western themes. Despite some issues I have with, like, the ending kind of being a bit too overblown for its own good. But yeah, definitely a solid little genre film uh, that we both recommend for sure. And speaking of things we recommend for sure, here is an ESO show you can queue up right after hours. Nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. What is the Rusted Robot Podcast? Hey there, this is Sean. This is Josh. And this is Kitty. We're your weekly geekly pop culture news. We talk about comic books. Movies. Anime. Celebrity deaths. <laughs> collectibles. Toys. Movie news. Upcoming trailers. And so much more. Check us out on the ESO Network and everywhere podcasts are found. Your nerdy news specialist, the Rusted Robot Podcast. All right, now let's get into um, our bad feature, Zardoz. Zardoz! Zardoz speaks to you. His chosen ones, the gun is good. Tell me everything. My name is Zed. For Zardoz, I am an exterminator. Zardoz! 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 <laughs> so, Zardoz uh, is a film that came out February 6, 1974, so we're flashing back. This is right after Diamonds Are Forever, and apparently Connery couldn't get much work after he kind of went back to the Bondwell uh, for a bit there. So this is the same year he would do some, like, Murder on the Orient Express, where he's part of, like, a big ensemble cast. Uh, but this is uh, sort of the only lead role he had after Diamonds Are Forever, and uh, this was him being recruited by John Borman, uh, who uh, directed and co-wrote the movie, along with a William Stair. And Borman we've covered before in terms of Deliverance, and this was his blank check movie, after Deliverance was such a beloved big box office gainer. Hey, you can do whatever you want. He did Zardos. And god damn did he do Zardos. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? <laughs> Have you ever seen this before this? 
I had only heard Legends of Zardoz and seen, obviously, like, if you don't know what Zardoz is, um, it's going to be really hard for me to do a plot summary, <laughs> but you would probably know this at least for the image of Sean Connery with, like, two red bandoliers and essentially red underwear. Like, if you've seen that image around, that's the look he has in this movie, which is this weird post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie in which he plays sort of like the one of many enforcers who are under the rule of Zardoz, who is this giant god they pray to that's literally a floating head that says things like, uh, the penis is evil, the gun is good, and he literally produces guns out of his giant mouth for them to use to track down people who are breeding. Uh, that's at least what Sean Connery's role usually is, until he stumbles upon this group, I believe, called the Eternals, which are these, like, fancy society types who have lived forever and uh, don't reproduce and are just sort of like the elites, have uh, completely ignored what's going on outside the apocalypse and they live in this loving, like, carefree existence. Um, um, and they don't age, except for those who are deemed to have some sort of, like, issue or, like, put on trial and forced to age and become, like, these forever old-looking folks who wish to die. And I think that's the best I can do, because this movie's a fucking mess. <laughs> really? You think so? <laughs> yeah, dude, it's so much of a mess to where, I swear to God, like, every five minutes I'm going, did I fucking miss something? Like, what is going on here? There was a lot of rewinding, like, ten-second rewind things for me, for sure. <laughs> Which would explain nothing. Like, oh, okay, who's this guy with the book? What has this got to do with anything? Wait a minute, it's the floating head guy? Is he Zardoz? Oh no, he's Albert, whatever the fuck. What the fuck is happening here? <laughs> it is so... St Why? There's a whole scene where people are watching Sean Connery's crash to see if he gets a boner. Yes. And I'm like, this is still happening? Like, this has been like five minutes now. And it's it's just and his wig. Oh good God. With the giant braid in his hair, yes. Oh, it's so bad. I no, this movie is fucking nuts. Either it's brilliant and I just don't understand it, or it's the fucking most convoluted, crazy sort of acid trip shit I've seen in a long time. And I'm willing to bet it's a bit of both. <laughs> yeah. It's very ambitious, to say the least, because it's trying to cover a lot of themes of, like, class and about religious themes and also the, like, mortality and what that means. There's so much that's going on here, and a lot of it is done through weird exposition that doesn't necessarily um, entertain as much. And it kind of reminds me a lot of another movie Borman would do after this, Exorcist to the Heretic, in terms of yes. it's pretty incomprehensible. But I would at least argue this one is a bit more entertaining than, say, An Exorcist to the Heretic, which is completely incomprehensible, as opposed to this movie, I got what they were going for, I just don't think they did it that well, which makes it at least interesting to watch. Maybe not entertaining, but you're at least kind of like, okay, what the fuck's happening at every single step? It just introduces all these weird concepts and have these weird visuals, like the bit where he walks into, like, the Eternal House uh, for, you mentioned, Zardoz is actually this Wizard of Oz type thing, which literally becomes a part of the plot, of um, this magician who was inside of this, like, floating head, who's, like, this weird, eccentric um, <laughs> person that has a towel on his head that's just like, oh, hello, look at me, it's I'm Albert Finney. <laughs> drawn on mustache. <laughs> and, and what the fuck, dude? 
Like, um, you know, look into the orb. What do you see? <laughs> like, I see nothing. Shardosh! <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, the but then, but when Connery stumbles into his house and he comes across, like, the hologram technology that they have, there's all this weird shit of him, like, projecting, like, whatever image, and he's trying to grab, like, the chicken wing he sees and he can't grab it, and then it has, like, an eye projection on his hand, so it's like, what is the symbolism? <laughs> At the same time, it is just cramming so much into every frame. I think it fits, like, it's, it's a bad movie to me, but every single step, I'm just like, okay, keep going, I have no idea what this means, but keep going. <laughs> I completely agree with you. I, I would rather watch this ten times than rewatch Exorcist 2. Right. I mean, well, let's put it that way, just because what the fuck is happening in this movie? And then it's like, there, then there are scenes that last so long. Like, we'll give you all our knowledge for your seed. And it's like 10 minutes of Sean Connery standing there with shit just flashing on his face. Right, projecting onto him. And it looks weirdly like a James Bond, like, opening title sequence. Like, it looks yeah. just like from Russia with Love's opening bit. I, I mean, and you're like, oh, God, please just hurry up and go somewhere with this. And then it's like, then it's like the old people, whatever they're called in this, like the de- the degenerates or something. I forget the what they're renegades. Called. I think. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, they they're trying to hunt him down and get him, and then like he comes back. They're like, oh, he's back. Let's help him. Like, what is happening here? Why? And Sean Connery is disguised as a bride in order to get into yes. this weird costume party where there's like a Dracula and there's another guy in like a top hat, just like, oh, let's frolic around with our torches. Homeboy who plays friend. In this, mm-hmm. I swear to God, I thought it was the guy from the app. Right, they both have that same Roger Daltrey energy, I agree. <laughs> 100%. And this movie takes place in that universe. Like, this is the future of the Apple. <laughs> right, this is the post-apocalyptic future of that 1994. <laughs> yes, it, truly, it is. Like, what the hell is going on in this movie, man? Like, uh... Even though, like, certain scenes last forever, there's stuff in every nook and cranny of this movie that you're at least fascinated by. Like, there's a whole sequence when it's Charlotte Rampling and the other lady capture him and decide to make him basically their servant. And they talk about, oh, yes, whenever someone dies, like, you shot the Zardoz guy, who's the magician. Um, when he dies, he's going to be reborn in another body. Like, oh, look here, the process has started. There's, like, a fetus in a bag. There's all these other bodies that are strewn around, like, the weird triangular room they're in. And it's like, you know, that's at least an interesting visual. It feels like we're watching, like, a live recreation of, like, a Greek painting of some sort. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's there's so much going on, and yet sometimes nothing. Right. Like, it, it's really bizarre, dude. Like, there's, it, it's, the thing is, they are doing a lot in this movie. There is a lot going on. But there's not a lot of, like, proper explanation Everything is sort of abstract where you're like, I think you're supposed to take your own interpretation of a lot of it, which is fine. That doesn't bother me. But when it's like two hours of it and is it supposed to be a comedy? Is it not like it's supposed to be a serious, like sort of sci-fi post-apocalyptic or is it not like what the fuck is happening here? And then some of it's so on the nose, like the end bit with him and Charlotte Rampling sitting there with the baby that ages and they die like it's okay we fucking get it it is all over the place but i think for this movie to be in any way successful be it fascinating or even bad to where you want to talk about it it has to be all over the place if this movie was more like 
say a Logan's run where it's just a cheesy sci-fi movie starring Sean Connery or whatever, I don't think you would really care, give two shits about it. The fact that this is so crazy has given it this sort of lasting power where this movie has become like a cult status movie now. Yeah, there's a huge cult of people that love this. Even a you know, previous guest friend of the show, Marcelo Pico, loves this movie. And it's stated, like, what criterion release this, please? Um, it, it deserves that sort of uh, distinction. I get it, honestly. It feels kind of like one of these movies that's, like, it's so ambitious that you have to at least, like, admire what it's going for. And even, the, I think it also works because you can tell Connery is trying to earn some bread with this movie. And he's in a desperate place. So it feels like he's kind of at least trying to make this work as well as he can. Like, there's a bit, probably my favorite sort of um, funny bit of the movie, where, like, oh, you have to go down into this tribunal area inside of this glass, like, pyramid, and he has to, like, walk around and, like, disappear underneath <laughs> for, like, like, he's going down somewhere. It's such a silly, stupid shot, but he's trying to sell it. And I think in that same way, like, my favorite probably whole sequence of the movie is when he's talking about his discovery of who Zardoz is, even though it's such an on-the-nose thing of it being Wizard of Oz, but they got rid of W-I and of. Um, but at the same time, I think he's selling the weird kind of, like, hypnotic realization that his entire life is a sham. And I like the visual of him going into that library and tearing all these books apart. And the weird thing of, like, even though it's on a string, the book actually floating there in the middle distance as he's going over to it. Feels like this weird dream-like quality to it that I'm kind of fascinated by. Yeah, I mean, I get it. He doesn't really do much in this though he doesn't have even a lot of dialogue you can tell like he definitely has no idea what's going on oh no i think that's obvious yes (laughs) yeah that's painfully obvious that he's just like fuck it borman i need my money you want me to shave what i'm talking about penises (laughs) all right (laughs) like you know he just has no idea which i think sells the weird confusion of that character because his whole station is basically being like an audience surrogate for like hey here are all these weird complex themes we're going for like hey let's exposit this whole sequence about like these people who are forced to be like alive but aren't really like aware of anything like basically drugged awake in one section over here and they nearly try and have him have sex with one of the women who's in that state, which is a really weird sequence. He sells at least the confusion of like being in the middle of all this in a way that I think with any other actor who maybe was on the wavelength of this movie, it wouldn't work. I think everyone else is on that weird wavelength, and it kind of works that he's in the dark. Like, what the fuck are you people talking about? I have no idea. Yeah, he can, like it's obvious, dude. I'm just going to stand here and be aroused. Like, <laughs> let's put it this way. I legitimately, when, after I watch this, like, I don't know if I could put into words a lot of what I want to say about this movie. Right. Because <laughs> it's so fucking bizarre. Like, I think Sean Connery's good in it, but also, is he? Like, I, I have no idea. Like, it, it's just, it's fucking weird, dude. Like, and it's not weird in the sense of, like, you know, sort of like art house movies can be. Or, or things like that. It's not that. This is weird, like, David Lynch's Dune took, a, like, a bath in MDMA and then, like, and then got into an orgy. It, it feels like a movie that most movies are feel like, oh, they're done on cocaine. This is a movie made on, like, hallucinogens, for sure. It has to be. Yeah. It has to be. There had to have been acid going around. I slightly disagree with you in terms of, I do think part of it feels like weird artsy movie, but that's, like, one-fifth of the various different 
weird aesthetics this movie has. Which is the weird thing, because it wants to have, like, these big operatic sequences scored to Beethoven's Seventh Symphony and shit like that. So it wants to have, like, that purported bigness, but also it has, like, a weird children's film flair. Even, like, I love the opening prologue of the movie, which is the um, Arthur Frayne character, who's, like, the magician, is introducing the world of Zardoz. Like, his head's moving around like it's an early screensaver, like, boop, boop. I love that that was demanded by the studio for like, hey, you have to explain some of this. Like, that's that's an attempt at explaining what's going on, and it's already offsetting. Hey, guys. Uh, look, John, I, I get it, but you're gonna have to really kind of help us here. All right, I'll make a put a floating fucking head in it. <laughs> we'll talk directly to the audience. He's gonna talk directly to you, and then Sean Connery just wakes up inside the head. Like, how Which, did he get in there? Well, and they explain it later, but it doesn't really help. Though I do like the visual of him rising up from the sand. That once again almost feels like they're kind of playing on his Bond aesthetics because there's a lot of him like holding these guns, and it feels like they're kind of commenting on him as sort of a masculine figure for around that time. At the same time. So there's stuff like that that I can immediately draw onto. And, like, that imagery is interesting. And then it's, like, Arthur Freeman, like, Oh, hello! Look at me! I have a fucking t-shirt on my head! (laughs) Dude, that's exactly what it looks like, too. (laughs) Like, it looks like he's just rocking a t-shirt. Like, made a ninja mask out of, like, his dad's t-shirt or something. Like, (laughs) it's really fucking bad. And wearing weird weird ceremonial robes, just like, Oh, I'm gonna get shot! Goodbye! And he floats out the mouth. (laughs) Off I go! (laughs) Come back! I can't! I don't know how it works! Goodbye! (laughs) Goodbye! Um, And then it's like not even a proper goatee drawn on. It's just like four squiggly. He looks like he's got the symbol for Hydra drawn on his chin. Like, right. <laughs> it makes no sense. I love the fact that that dude's like the big puppet master. Player. It's like, it was I who showed you the Wizard of Oz book, and I planted I all the seeds. <laughs> like, sure. And Frontier knew the whole time, and he was helping me. By the way, this is another great example of a movie we're talking about on the show, that if you don't know what this movie is, you might think we had a fever dream. And we kind of did, because we watched the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I will say this, though, now that I brought up, the half-old-age face that they did was pretty effective. Yeah, I like the look of all the sort of older people, and especially how it looks like they're sort of derelict and run, once again renegades to, like, all the, the Eternals, or whatever the fuck they're called. Yeah, but when fucking Sean Connery runs friend in there on a rickshaw, and they're just <laughs> grabbing, they're grabbing like, like, studio prop groceries where they all got giant loaves of bread and random greens. And you're like, get the fuck out of here, what is happening? We have to go quick, or else they'll try to kill us! Like, why would you go there in a rickshaw, then? What are you doing? (laughs) It's just, yeah, this movie is batshit crazy. You know, the thing is, this is not going to turn out well for a lot of people if they watch this. No, I agree. They're going to hate it. Yeah. But some people are going to be like, that was fucking crazy. Or you might be like Marcelo and be like, ah, this was brilliant. I absolutely love it. It depends on what day you watch it, when you watch it, what kind of mood you're in, everything. It's a cinematic Rorschach test, is what I would call it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you see? A bunch of dots. What do you see? A masterpiece. What do you see? Um. Yeah. Sean Connery <laughs> in underwear? Okay. <laughs> like, we'll go with it. Yeah, it's nuts, dude. I, I you know, and I, I think that actually is going to sum it up for me. I, I think I'm going to steal your quote. This is a cinematic Rorschach test. Your synopsis or any synopsis that you even read on this movie is inaccurate. 
this movie cannot be put into like a synopsis. Like shit just pops off in this movie constantly and with no explanation. But at the same time, I think that makes it so unique in a way that sort of has to be seen. But I think by a certain crowd, if you kind of like weird, interesting 70s movies and are willing to watch a movie acknowledging like this is not a good, bad movie. This is not like we have the three different versions of uh, bad movies I usually talk about in the show. We have like a good, bad movie that's like entertaining the whole time. You have like a a bad, awful movie that's just like a complete waste of your time. And then like a cinematic train wreck. And this feels at least closest to, like, Trainwreck, where you're like, I'm watching it and compelled by it just flopping all over the place. But also, it has so much more ambition that you're at least kind of fascinating. And you could have, like we mentioned, all these different reactions where you might think it's a masterpiece, or you might think it's the biggest piece of shit you've ever seen. <laughs> but in that way, I think that makes it at least a bad movie that if you're enough of a cinephile, I would definitely recommend at least seeing once. And maybe yeah. with some helpful devices to help you <laughs> perhaps Depends, it's long too <laughs> well actually it's not that's the weird thing it's only like an hour 40 minutes yeah it feels long <laughs> I know, it, it does feel long that's the thing it does feel consistently slow <laughs> i'm not gonna deny that um but but yeah i would say if you're enough of a cinephile zardoz is worth watching at least once maybe only once <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that um but that is the end of our discussion of our two movies, though we do have some picking to do for next episode and some feedback to read, because over at DEDB Pod, we ask you every Monday usually about, like, what are your favorite or least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing? So we asked you all about Sir Sean Connery, and um, uh, first we got an actual Brit, James Rodriguez, friend of the show, who says, I actually have not seen his Bond film, so I'm waiting for my Britishness to be revoked. I thoroughly enjoyed his turns in The Untouchables and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, though. Um, and then Shaquille Lambert, at Shaq Excellence on Twitter, also friend of the show, says, uh, Best, I mean, obviously his Bond flicks, especially Goldfinger. The Untouchables, The Rock, also Dragonheart sucks, but he's great in it. Uh, worst, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen being so bad he quit acting entirely speaks for himself. Josh Riokes at JCJ Riokes uh, says, I think uh, Medicine Man is a messy gem. Uh, McTiernan directing, Sean becoming the white savior, witch doctor man, by giving thumbs to natives, uh, protecting Fern Gully by punching bulldozer drivers. When I was in grade five and the rainforest was my number one worry, that was my jam. Uh, John Scott at John M. Scott says, Worst, uh, the Avengers. No, not those Avengers. Uh, Source Demal says, I actually liked the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen for what it was. And uh, Archie Corbett III says, I would like someone to sit down with me and explain why League was such a bad movie. Well, I will say that was my alternate choice, and I did actually rewatch it because it's on Amazon Prime currently. I don't hate it probably as much as I did probably the last time I saw it. I remember seeing it in the theater at the time, and I kind of liked it just as a kid who was like, oh, wow, they'll never do like a team-up superhero movie. Yeah, I get that. And then I watched it again on TV probably not too long after. It's like, oh, this is terrible. And watching it again, there's some fun in it, I think. Like, some of the characters they introduce have some interesting ideas to them, and I like some of the action beats. I think the biggest trouble with that movie is it looks so grim, and it looks so, like, plain in its, like, uh, color in particular. It's, like, a very steel-gray movie in a way that's kind of dull. Um, but I think Connery's bringing it as much as he can, and um, I kind of love Richard Roxborough, who has been in stuff like uh, Moulin Rouge and a few other things. He's a very hammy actor, who I think is kind of fun. Um, but man, especially that third act is really bad. 
with like especially when they have like the whole element of like oh we're gonna steal all these different fictional characters powers and like put them into one person that guy becomes like a really bad tasmanian devil giant red dude or whatever yes probably my favorite thing is um the depiction of jekyll and hyde i like jason fleming a lot as an actor and i actually dig sort of like him in the big suit and sort of using force uh perspective a lot more and like actual makeup and stuff really works for him and even like him showing up in mirrors and stuff i really dug how they did that character it's a bad movie, but there's some fun shit in it, though, too. I like Captain Nemo a lot. I, I, I really like the look of it, the technology involved with him, like even that big dumb car. I call it an automobile. <laughs> I know. It's so stupid, <laughs> but I, I, I love it, you know. Uh, but yeah, other than it, it is just really sort of bland looking, and it's just kind of paint by numbers. Like None of it is surprising. None of it is really controversial like the source material was, uh, which granted there are things that they took out of the movie that wasn't needed, you know, from the book, uh, which is fine. But there's just some some about it, man. It's Sean Connery looks again like he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. The the fight scenes are laughably bad uh, because he's, you know, he's so old at the point at this point already. But, yeah, you know. I think it's fine. I think it's just a, it's an okay action movie. It's not the worst Alan Moore adaptation. Uh, I don't even want to know what you think is. Uh, the Killing Joke. Oh, that is the absolute worst one. Oh, good God. The Killing Joke is, the Killing Joke is offensively bad. Yeah. How weird is it that Connery did both a team-up superhero movie and a movie called The Avengers before they ever combined that into the actual Avengers we got later? <laughs> Speaking of which, good lord. Yeah, that's one I have not seen, but everything I've heard sounds pretty bad. Unless it comes up for the show, I honestly wouldn't even waste my time with it. You know, speaking maybe to more of the good ones, I guess, what would you say is your favorite Connery Bond movie? Uh, from Russia with Love. Yes, uh, that is my answer as well. Hey! Yeah! It's like our cycles have synced up. Sure. Um, <laughs> but what I what I dig about From Russia With Love is that it feels like it's introducing a lot of the Bond elements. Like, it's the first one with a big title sequence. It's the first one with Q in it. It has a lot of, like, the setup for the template. But it feels the most sort of, like, scaled back of those movies. It doesn't have Absolutely. as much of the big over-the-top stuff that looks kind of cheesy now. And especially Robert Shaw's so good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, From Russia With Love, I, I completely agree with you. It's not as sort of whimsical as some of the other ones are it it feels like a straight up sort of espionage movie i I absolutely just absolutely am in love with that movie and it has some of the least objectionable sexist stuff there's still some of that in there but it's not like even goldfinger which has a lot of the great aesthetics a lot of the stuff they do with pussy galore is like upsetting (laughs) like really genuinely upsetting i'm not a fan of the the bond girl in in from russia with love even has the most interesting conflict because she's on the Spectre side, but she might kind of like turn over and everything. I, I like her conflict a lot more than most of the other Bond girls in particular in that era. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. She has a little bit more um, sort of weight to her character dilemma other than, you know, should I sleep with him or shouldn't I? Right, though I will say it is probably the weakest Bond song of the Connery era. Like kind of bad Frank Sinatra song, personally. Yeah, yeah, it's bad. I, I do agree with that. It My is, favorite of those would be uh, You Only Live Twice. Yeah, I think that's probably mine too. That, that's at least the most memorable, I would say. Yeah, but what about in terms of like other Connerys uh, that you dig on? Oh man, you know, like I've said before, you know, of course Highlander, The Untouchables, 
you know, there's so much that he's done that is really good, even though he is in no way Russian. He was really good in the hunt for Red October. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like Just Cause, at least at the time. I haven't seen Just Cause in forever, so it could be terrible at this point. Uh, the Name of the Rose, you know, it, it, fucking, even though it's a terrible movie, but Time Bandits. I love uh, Time Bandits. I would not say that's a terrible movie by any stretch. Yeah, I kind of love Time Bandits, too. Murder on the Orient Express, of course, as you mentioned. I recently watched that in preparation for the show when he fucking uh-huh. owns, especially like he's that scene where he's interrogated by Albert Finney and they kind of go up against each other. It's a great yeah. battle of the mustaches, especially. Oh, yeah, don't, there's some fantastic mustaches in that movie. Yes, fantastic Absolutely mustaches. Great. But, uh, you know, I think my all-time favorite Connery, you know, now in reflecting, uh, is probably as Indy's father. I, I think that's the perfect sort of Sean Connery, where he's he's deadly serious. He takes everything super serious, but he's also got that sense of fun with everyone else but his son in the movie. Uh, I, I just think he's absolutely perfect. Okay, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's oh no, boy. Jehovah Stotch with an eye. Should have mailed it to the Mox Brothers. Yeah, right. Right. Oh, it's so good. Oh, yes, she did. That's for blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I think that's my favorite use of him, and I think in particular the fact that he's so unassuming throughout most of that movie, and uh-huh. how, like, eventually he ends up kind of being a part of the mission, but also very clearly not being as up to the challenge as a younger indie. Like the whole scene with the pigeons on the beach. Yes. How he uses those, I, I think, is a great example of like how he kind of uses intellect to kind of work around. And also really works because Indiana Jones was created because Spielberg could never get into the offices to do a Bond movie. So he's like, fuck it, I'll make my own sort of serial action picture that kind of is the closest I would get to that. And he got uh, James Bond to play Indy's father in a really great turn. And that really also revitalized his career, along with Hunt for Red October. Really gave Connery the boost that made him such a weird star in the 90s that still mostly doesn't work for me, except The Rock. I will. I think The Rock is probably one of the better Michael Bay movies, and one of the better examples of like that action um, era for Connery, playing off Nicolas Cage, especially in a fun, over the top performance. And talk about a fucking cast too. Oh yeah, that ca- that cast is fucking stacked. But uh, if it's for Bond, if it's for Highlander, if it's for Last Crusade, whatever. I mean, he was he's just very very sort of prolific and important and sort of iconic uh, presence in film. Yeah, and I would only say the worst one to me is still probably Never Say Never Again. I think that's such a disastrous move and was only done because of the weird legal loophole. Mm -hmm. It's a remake of Thunderball, which isn't even one of my favorite Bond movies either. Oh, um, particularly with that whole fucking, like, elaborate scuba sequence. It's like, look, we can shoot underwater now. Great. It's really fucking boring. <laughs> I don't <laughs> care. I completely agree. I'm sorry, what like, was that? You want 30 more minutes of it? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a huge misstep. Maybe should have gone back to the drawing board on that one. It does also say something that like he's the only non-consecutive Bond. In between uh, You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever, he skipped down on Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which I would honestly say, like, we'll save a lot more Bond talk for when we ever do sure. our Bond episode, whenever No Time to Die ever comes out. Honor Majesty's Secret Service is nearly a perfect Bond movie, except for the Bond, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, George Lazenby, you know, not necessarily the best. But uh, yeah, I think Honor Majesty's Secret Service is absolutely damn near a pitch-perfect James Bond movie as well. 
and would work so well if you had Connery in that part because it feels yes. like a movie designed to kind of have him let his guard down, his masculinity down a bit against Diana Rigg. How great would that have been? Like uh-huh. they're back. Oh, it would have been so good. But it's still a pretty great movie, even with that to be in it. <laughs> yeah, that poor guy. <laughs> well, as we say farewell to Connery, we want to thank some people like all of you who provide that feedback. Really appreciate it. Also, thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And uh, thanks, of course, to our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash gedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get all sorts of perks, like a monthly podcast we do, and also you get to vote in polls that decide, say, topics that we do, or even specific movies that we do, including right after this episode goes up on Wednesday, the 11th, you all get to vote between two of Adam's good choices for an upcoming episode. Adam, what is that episode we're doing? Meryl Streep. We're doing a Meryl Streep episode, uh, finally, that we've sort of been playing around with doing and trying to find a place to fit it in here and there. Uh, we Because de- we definitely both agree that we want to do maybe uh, more female-centric uh, driven episodes and uh, you know who better than Meryl Streep to to do an episode on yes and your two good choices are they are Death Becomes Her and Julia and Julia yes two interesting choices that I wouldn't have anticipated honestly um, but two choices I'm so down for either one of them really dig both those movies but yeah um, so you all get to vote and uh, decide if you just pay $1 a month over at Patreon.com. Just you can vote for whichever one of those. And uh, whatever wins ends up being the good movie we discuss, uh, along with my bad movie, which we'll pick on the episode before that, which will be very interesting. Oh, I can't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to go. Right, right. <laughs> you could say it's going to be a regular Sophie's Choice. Uh... Are you proud of yourself? No, not really. No, you shouldn't be. But if you want to have uh, more of our fun antics, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. You can also email us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. Um, you can also find uh, me on Twitter, Instagram, and even Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy, uh, where I post about movies and stuff. And I also do some writing for long-form stuff um, on my blog, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Yes, you can find Thomas. At all of those places. And you know what else? You can also find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore Adam. A-D-A-M. And I am also on Letterboxd at Schwanson. Now, I understand that is a ridiculous name. So I will spell it out once and only once. As many other times that I I may reference on the show, you'll have to go back to this episode to get the spelling. It is S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. Thomas is definitely more of the author on Letterboxd compared to me, but I have about 9 million lists. So, yeah, you can find me at those places. It's a shame you can't, like, change your username to the same thing you have for your Twitter and Instagram to make that more cohesive. I I know, I'm not <laughs> well, for more of this banter, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or other podcasting platforms. And if you're on the ESO network, uh, listen here. Why not listen to some of the other great shows, like the one we played a promo for in the middle of the show? And uh, you can also dig into the archives on Podbean for our uh, full a bunch of episodes, including ones before we joined the ESO network. And, you know, if nothing else, if you could just rate, review, or share the show around, that helps us. It gets us more visibility, adds more listeners to our cult. 
Yeah, we would really, 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 really appreciate it. If you enjoy what you hear, go ahead and hit the like button. Hit the share button. Become Eternals with us to, to live forever and have weird hologram projections. <laughs> Who wants to do that? <laughs> Who wants to live forever? It's a good point. Highlander reference. Sean Connery. Uh, oh, jeez, oh. look at you. We are on it tonight. Me with the Sophie's Choice and you with the Highlander. Yep, exactly as good. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but before we leave for the night, we do have a couple of picks to do. Because, uh, Adam, next week we're doing a show about um, our favorite thing um, for me to reference and you to do a snooty voice about. Uh, what is our topic for next week? Oh, yes, the Criterion Collection. <laughs> Quite, yes. Yes, we are doing an episode on the Criterion Collection, which will be uh, very interesting because it's a wide array of films, mostly art house movies, but uh, there's a few interesting gems in there. And we want to keep in mind that we're going for stuff that's, you know, been released recently physically as in print or is on the Criterion Channel streaming service. Because um, if we went for, like, stuff that's out of print, that would have some weird turns. Like, technically, if we did that, we could have Robocop or Ghostbusters as options. <laughs> Because they were both early on released as, like, laser discs. Hell yeah, I'll do either of those. Let's do those. But I think we want to try and get some movies that we wouldn't do otherwise for a Criterion episode. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> Fine. Well, plus, Adam, the picking for your choices is out of your hands. Um, out of our hands in general, because the patrons over at patreon.com slash pod ended up picking that because it was between uh, Beware the Blob and Shampoo... And the patrons end up giving us shampoo as our bad pick, which should be interesting. Yeah, which I kind of expected, I think. Uh, it was a landslide. Yeah, I don't, I, uh, I don't know if I... I might not watch it. You might have to do the show by yourself. <laughs> well, it's a one-man show. <laughs> my dream this whole time. But no, uh, we'll, we'll both be talking about shampoo along with my good movie, which I have assigned number between 1 and 10 for both of my choices. And you're going to pick a number between 1 and 10 to get us uh, our good choice for the episode. So, Adam, number between 1 and 10. I'm going to go number 8. Okay, at number 9, I had the more recent movie that I chose, and one that I'm quite excited for and curious to hear your opinion on. Uh, one of my favorite movies that was technically released last year, though I didn't see it until earlier this year, one of the last movies I even saw in theaters, in fact, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Okay, yes, you have talked about this movie uh, quite a bit to me, both on and off the show. So, yeah, I'm excited to finally have a... Well, I always had a reason to watch it, but now I have its homework. So that'll be cool. I'm excited to see that one. <laughs> Homework's cool, kids. Stay in school. <laughs> By the way, that's not on the Criterion streaming service, but it is on Hulu, if you're all curious to watch. Ah, some more leg workout for me. <laughs> But then at number four, I had one that is on the Criterion streaming service, and one that, once again, I don't think we would ever cover if for any other topic. I have Orson Welles' F for Fake, which is um, an Orson Welles movie that's initially about sort of like a documentary about art forgery, but ends up becoming a more interesting kind of examination on fakery, even in terms of cinema, and is Orson Welles being very Orson Welles in his own way. I would definitely recommend that, especially if you like snooty movies. And I do not, so that's kind of uh, <laughs> kind of excited we didn't get that one. Well, Portrait of Lady on Fire is uh, also art housing in its own way, but it's so much more than that. But we'll get into all that next time, and until then, everybody just remember, the penis is evil. Yep, it is. Yeah, I mean, all things that's considered. Yeah. yeah, bye!
has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.